Welcome to episode 44 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, SJ Jones, called JJ. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're continuing our author career series with qualifications. Uh, What sort of qualifications are there, and do you need them? No. (laughs) Spoiler alert, that's the answer, no. We're done, okay, podcast (laughs) over. See you guys next week. (laughs) So this is actually, Kelly, and my third time trying to record this episode because it's yes, cursed. it is cursed. <laughs> the universe does not want us to tell you whether or not to get an MFA. Spoiler alert, the answer is you don't need to get an MFA. But the world doesn't want us to tell you that. This uh, recording, this is our third time. We tried twice last night and it wasn't happening and so we're trying again tonight. Um, I hope it works for you guys. <laughs> Keeping my fingers crossed the whole episode. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about qualifications. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll get to the MFA piece a little bit later. Yes. Because I just sort of want to talk about writing in general uh, and writing in a classroom setting. And, um, you know, like obviously there's like academic papers and stuff like that, but just learning how to write in a classroom setting. Now, in terms of education or degrees, you don't need anything (laughs) in order to to write the only thing you need in order to write is just to write to practice writing and to keep putting out it um putting out books there are a couple of writers out there um published writers really good published writers who you know for example never went to college um but you know as long as you are able to convey your thoughts clearly and you know in a logical linear fashion you really don't need to like spend any extra money or anything to to like learn writing or get any sort of certificate in writing which eh. so let's talk about um college first because many of us do go to college um and major in different things like if you want to be a, a question we often get at pub crawl is do i need to major in english or writing if I want to get into publishing or if I want to be a writer? And again, the answer is no. I think what is useful is taking classes that do require you to write. And I don't mean fiction necessarily, but any class that requires you to write papers. History, social studies, political science, English. Anything that requires you to write analytical papers, I think is actually really great training. Because what that does is it teaches you to, one, distill whatever argument you have about whatever you're trying to write about. So trying to distill that argument into a clear thesis statement and then logically defend and provide evidence to support your argument. And I think that skill is actually useful for pretty much any aspect of your life. Right. Um, it's extremely useful, you know, persuasive writing, um, of any kind, I think is just like, just learning to think like that and organize your thoughts in that way, I think is just an extremely useful skill. Um, 
But as far as majors go, it, it doesn't actually really matter. Major in what you love um, or major in whatever you think is going to be best for you in your career. You know, do what works best for you in college. But if you are thinking of becoming a writer, it really doesn't matter. I majored in English literature, but I majored in it because I like I like it. So that was mm-hmm. that was it. You know, what did you major in, Kelly? I did major in writing. I majored in writing with a concentration in fiction, and my minor was in English literature. Um, and I enjoyed my education. I did enjoy my writing classes. I took a variety of classes in fiction and poetry and nonfiction and persuasive writing and all kinds of things, and I had to put together a senior project that was you know, a single piece of writing sustained over a long period of time. For myself, I was working on a novel at that time that I had to turn in. And the thing about a writing major in undergrad for me was the workshop environment. Almost all of my classes were workshops. And we, you know, get our schedule for the semester and there would be certain assignments and you'd have to turn them in and then you would be scheduled for a workshop at some point throughout the semester where you'd turn in your work to the entire class and everyone would read it and then you would come into class and you'd have to sit down and everyone would give you feedback for the hour and you were not allowed to say anything. You just had to sit there and absorb it all, which is really difficult, but really rewarding once you can train yourself how to do it. Um, and it was great in that sense because we've talked previously about um, critical feedback in our Critique Partners podcast, and I think that you absolutely can go out and find some critique partners to give you feedback, and I highly encourage that. One difference, I think, between going out and finding your own critique partners versus being in a workshop environment in a classroom is that you get to select your critique partners and you don't get to select your classmates. And so you may, even unconsciously, when searching for critique partners, find people who whose opinions and tastes align closely with yours and people who may be precious with your work in the same way that you are precious with your work. They may not. You might find critique partners who who can give you um, feedback from a completely different perspective, and that's great. But I think most of us would try to seek out people who can affirm us <laughs> rather <laughs> rather than you know be more of an adversary. And in the classroom, you don't get to pick. Everyone reads your work and everyone is going to offer their opinions. And the people in my workshop classes were from a variety of backgrounds and had different opinions and values and levels of talent and insight. And so I was exposed to a much greater range of critical feedback than I would have been otherwise. And in some ways that was really, really difficult And in other ways, that was really, really excellent. Um, I think learning to take criticism is an important part of writing. If you ever intend to share your writing with anyone beyond yourself, uh, which most of us do have that intention when we write. Um, So I really enjoyed getting my writing degree in undergrad. I did learn a lot about writing, but I think that... I learned a lot about writing because I was writing all the time. I don't think that knowledge necessarily came from classes or workshops or professors, although, of course, I did learn things from specific people and had mentors and guidance. But I think, honestly, the best way to learn about writing is to write. 
and the practice of writing is what helps you learn more about the art of writing and helps you improve your craft. Yeah, I would agree. Any sort of writing degree or MFA is really, it's not the classes you take. It's writing and writing and writing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And the more you write, the better you get at it. And the more you understand different things about craft, the more you read and the more you write are really kind of the two things you just need to do. I also agree with Kelly that I think the workshop experience is important. I minored in creative writing at NYU. I don't, I mean, I, I, I minored in creative writing. I was in a creative writing conservatory in high school. Um, so, and I always knew I liked to write. I wrote fan fiction. I wrote, you know, short stories and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I appreciated the workshop classes that I got from, from NYU. As Kelly said, you have people from all sorts of different backgrounds, different levels of skill and different tastes. Like some of them were literary writers and some of them were more genre, etc., etc. And the thing that I learned (laughs) immediately was I could not defend myself. So what you do, or at least what I did, what we did was we would write whatever the assignment was, and it was like maybe one or two of us um, were like in the hot seat, quote unquote, for the next week. Um, we'd come in and we'd sit down and everybody would give us their critique and we could not say a thing. You know, even if that person was incorrect, like they got facts about whatever you wrote wrong or they misinterpreted everything entirely, I could not say to them as they were giving me my critique, well, this is what I intended, or well, if you, you know, like two pages ago, you will notice that I said blank. Like, I couldn't do any of that. And I think that was the most useful piece, useful thing I learned, because that's what writing is going to be like. You are not, we mentioned this last week, you are not going to be able to peer over every reader's shoulder and be like, well, (laughs) well, this is what I intended. And this is the relationship I meant for you to have with this character. Or this is what the takeaway I wanted you to have. That's not possible. You can't do that. And any failure of you to impart that information is on... It, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's your failure or their failure to understand. It just means that there was a miscommunication and there's nothing you can do about it. Of course, after the critique was over, we could say our piece, but, you know, it, 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 it sucks having to sit there and sort of just take it and not be, and just have to bite my tongue. But it was really useful. And for me, it was useful in another way because... I've mentioned several times before, too, that I'm an extremely purple writer because I I love sounds and alliteration and all sorts of, you know, over-the-top, overwrought imagery. (laughs) And particularly in our poetry units, I, of course, had to basically sit down and listen to the critique and be unable to defend my own pretty writing if it didn't make sense. If the person reading my poetry was like, I don't understand what this metaphor is for, I couldn't, and I I couldn't defend that, but also it made me rethink it because I, when I wrote the line, I was like, oh, it sounds so beautiful. But then when it was read aloud in class, 
it didn't actually make any sense and it wasn't imparting any of what I intended to with this pretty sounding phrase. So that I think was really eye-opening, especially for me, because in the creative writing conservatory that I was part of in high school, I was often praised for this sort of thing. So then kind of going to college and having that eviscerated <laughs> was was really, really useful, actually. And I think probably the, the biggest takeaway that I took from it. Yeah. So that's kind of like undergrad creative writing. Kelly and I... Kelly and I did not, obviously, did not get our MFAs. No. No. I thought about it for a while and was looking at applications, but I actually ultimately decided against it and did not. Um, we, of course, have opinions about MFAs because <laughs> mm. we have opinions mm. about everything. Mm-hmm. But those opinions are coming from the place of having not, um, not received one or not um, attended an MFA program. And so if any of our listeners have done so and, and have differing opinions, email us, let us know. Maybe we'll read those out on a future podcast. Um, but in general, I think we're of similar minds. And at least for me personally, when I was considering applying to an MFA and I was talking to my mentors and I was kind of talking to my peers and I was talking to some other people that I knew that had gone on to get their MFAs and was trying to determine whether or not it was the right decision for me. And overwhelmingly, the number one thing I heard about MFAs was the luxury of time. That an MFA is a period in time where your sole focus and responsibility is to write. And you're writing in a structured environment alongside the other people in your cohort with mentors available to you. And for people like me who um, thrive off external validation, that's a really stimulating environment. Um, it also, even if you don't require external validation, just having that time, it's hard. I work a full-time job and I have a kid and I have to go grocery shopping and I still have to try to find time to write. And so it's hard when writing is not the one sole thing that you do to find that time. And so the luxury of time that an MFA offers is attractive. Um, Ultimately, it wasn't attractive enough for me, but that was the number one thing I always heard about it. I never intended to get an MFA. One, I actually hated school. Uh, I know this sounds kind of weird for it sounds somebody. blasphemous for a Ravenclaw, frankly. <laughs> I know. Well, I love to learn. I just hated school. I hated the bureaucracy of registering for classes and paying them money and doing this. I graduated in three years from college because I could not stand all of the BS surrounding the administration and everything else. I mean, I was fortunate enough that I had enough credits from high school for my AP classes and my SAT2s and everything to you know, basically get out a year early, but I just, I hated it. I didn't love it. I... So the, the idea of, you know, spending more time in an, in an educational institution just was, like, antithetical to my very being. <laughs> um, but if I had gone, you know, for a, further, for a graduate degree of any kind, I probably would have gone, gotten my master's in English literature um, or 
maybe law school, but eh, I my first job out of college was as a paralegal in a law firm, and very, 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 very quickly I learned that law was not something that I wanted to pursue at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, besides that, I, so I never intended to get an MFA degree. Um, so that's kind of like my personal reasons for not wanting to get one. On a practical level, and there is, the thing is about MFAs or any degree, any any degree whatsoever, you know, associates, bachelors, masters, whatever, you have to factor in cost, right? So I could not justify to myself spending that much money on a program that would not guarantee me a book deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it does not, by the way. No. <laughs> if you're thinking that you're going to get an MFA and come strolling out and the book deals are just going to fall into your lap, uh, no. Mm-mm. Readjust that expectation immediately. <laughs> from the editorial perspective, from the acquisitions perspective, I think an MFA might pique people's interests if you are a literary fiction writer. Um you know, if, you know, having that MFA there is, you know, from, I don't, I don't Iowa or Columbia or NYU, of course, we're New York centric in publishing. So those are recognizable programs to us. Um, so that might make us kind of sit up and pay attention a little bit, but you still have to deliver a great novel. And having read a lot of books on submission from these programs, I don't know if I can say that they teach you how to write novels in MFA programs. Yeah, I I don't think they necessarily do. It's really, like, obviously this is a, a very subjective viewpoint, and it's only, you know, based on my experiences, my, the, my submission list, and what I've seen. But... There's a, a sort of sameness to books that I saw from MFA programs. They were, you know, beautifully written and focused a lot on human conditions and emotions and were often very, very, very small in scope. And the whole, and I think it's because an MFA often drums into you, write what you know, and that's completely fine. And some of these kids, I think, went straight from undergrad to an MFA and wrote what they know, and that's not a lot, to be honest, (laughs) you know? Um, You haven't really experienced life outside of your cloistered academic environment, so the scope is going to be kind of small in terms of what you've already experienced. So to me, that's kind of, that was a, a big problem with these literary novels I got, where often, and I hate to say it, what I called emotional masturbation, Oh, yeah. Um, And it's like, if I had to read another novel about some, you know, middle-class white dude in Brooklyn who can't make human connections, and, you know, I I just, I was like, I was going to just quit. I was going to rage quit. (laughs) I was like, nope, I, done. And the thing is, like, each of these novels are beautifully written, but structurally, what can you, like, it's, it wasn't anything that I was looking for as a reader. So mm-hmm. 
that's obviously where my bias against MFAs comes from. But of course, there are plenty of people who do go to MFAs and get book deals, and sometimes they get book deals before they leave. Taya Obrecht, I think, mm-hmm. is possibly one of the more famous examples. I think she was at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I think she was at Columbia. She's the author of The Tiger's Wife, which I have not read, but I've heard really great things about. It's good. It's good. And I actually remember her specifically because David, my husband, was still working in um, in publishing at the time, and he was at Sterling Lord Literistic, where her agent was, and was remembered like them signing her when she was still in school. And he came home and told me, yeah, we signed this like girl who's in school getting her MFA. Yeah, I mean, I think it was actually a fairly significant deal as well. Mm-hmm. It was. So, like I said, it's not like it doesn't happen, but an MFA absolutely does not guarantee that. No. So those are all my kind of practical <laughs> reasons for not getting an MFA because a lot of these programs are also very expensive. They're not cheap. And unlike a lot of other graduate degrees, you know, an MFA may provide a stipend um, and you may be able to pull an adjunct class here and there teaching creative writing to undergrad students because that's who my undergrad creative writing teachers were at NYU, they were in the NYU MFA program and they taught creative writing to us. And that's actually another thing about an MFA. It gives you license to teach creative writing at higher levels in like a teaching certificate in some ways. So if you want to teach writing, that's actually not a bad route to go. You know, if you get your MFA degree and you want to go on to teach writing, that's pretty, you know, actually something fairly useful because writing jobs are rare, teaching jobs that is are rare and hard to get into, and if you do have an MFA from, like, Iowa, then they're obviously going to hire you as a writing teacher over someone else. But when we're talking about publishing, that's a completely different story. Um, the other thing about MFA, like, the, the good thing about MFAs, as Kelly had said, was it gives you time to write. And what I think that time to write provides for you is the period, just the space, the emotional and mental space to discover and refine your voice. And I will say that about MFA graduates, is that they often have a very distinct voice that's really great. But, as I said, a lot of them, you know, it may be a really great voice, but the scope is small, and they can't seem to be able to grow that scope into a bigger, broader novel mm-hmm. yeah at least not right out the gate yeah because again we've talked on this podcast before about published authors who their debut novel was actually their third or fourth book mm-hmm. you know or much you know beth revis was her 10th book right mm-hmm. and so it just because you've gotten an mfa and you've written a novel doesn't mean that that novel is going to be publishable it may take you several different projects and drafts before you get to the point where you have something publishable right yeah you you may come out of an mfa with an extremely refined voice but only writing a novel is going to teach you how to write a novel i think and the more you practice the the better you learn and in the course of like a two-year mfa program you're not going to have time unless you're incredibly prolific to like churn out like three or four novels um and learn each time you do it so so that's kind of like the publishing side of the mfa thing i do want to bring up another 
aspect of MFAs that I think an MFA teaches writers to write pretty and not a lot about craft. And there's also a sameness to a lot of MFA graduate voices. And I think part of that is because it is an extreme privilege and a luxury to spend six figures, to spend two years doing nothing but writing. And the people who are able to afford to do that are of a certain class, generally a certain race. Um, I do have a lot of friends, a lot of writers of color actually, who have gone to MFA programs and pretty much to a person, they regret it. <laughs> it is, a, like I said, the, the first thing is it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to invest in something that is not going to necessarily pan out in a, in a publishing contract. And then secondly, they were often the only person of color in their MFA program. And there's a sort of hegemony of culture being forced upon them, they would bring their own stories, right? They write what they know. So they bring their own stories to the table and they would get critique on their culture and it, 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 they just, they never felt comfortable about it. In fact, I think Juno Diaz wrote a piece about that, about, I think it was in the New Yorker, about how few people of color are actually in MFA programs because of this culture, basically because of the culture of whiteness. And it's, not hostile, not actively hostile against uh, people of color, but it's not exactly welcoming <laughs> or inclusive. That's kind of the one one piece about it, um, because I think a lot of M MFA programs kind of push the idea of literariness. Because if you have an interest in genre, romance, science fiction, fantasy, mystery, thriller, young adult... A lot of people in MFA programs also look down on that. Uh, there's a lot of snobbery in an MFA program. Of course, there are MFA programs dedicated to specifically children's fiction now, like the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Um, that was one of the first low-residency uh, MFA programs for people who are interested in um, pursuing children's literature. Hamline, I believe, is another low-residency program. Um, and then there are like sort of six week long intensives, Clarion, Clarion workshops for those who are interested in science fiction and fantasy writing. So those do exist, but like MFA programs, accredited MFA programs tend to really push like literary fiction at you. And, and I, and I got some of that myself just in, even in undergraduate, like my entire life, I've always loved fantasy, um, and I, I like historical fiction. My tastes are pretty genre-heavy, and that's often what I wrote. And But I got to my creative writing classes and that culture of literariness being pushed at me. So the, the novel I wrote in college was basically the thinly veiled autobiography that is intended mm -hmm. to be the next great American novel. Mm -hmm. And I have one of those. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, why did I waste so much time writing this stupid book when it's not 
at all what I want to write. But that's because I felt pressured to write that kind of book because of the genre snobbery that exists often around these writing programs. So, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I have poo-pooed the MFA for you guys. I'm incredibly sorry. And I don't want to discourage you from pursuing a higher degree in writing if that is something that you feel like you want and you need. Um, you know, Nova Rensuma, who I love, she got her MFA from Columbia and she credits that for, you know, the time to find her voice. Nova has other conflicted feelings about getting an MFA degree that she has written about her blog, which I'll try and find the links to put in the show notes. But, um, and again, teaching is, you know, a lot of my other friends who did get MFAs, you know, they don't necessarily have a driving need to be published and they wanted to teach writing and that's also fine. You know, if you want to get an MFA to basically learn how to teach writing to people, that's also great. So there are definitely reasons to get it, but don't also don't feel like you need it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like being a doctor where you need to have gone to medical school in order to practice medicine. You don't need to have gotten class, any sort of professional certificate of any kind to be qualified to write. So the other thing I wanted to ask you was, what about other classes? Because I know like Media Bistro and um, when I lived in New York, the uh, Gotham Writers Workshop often held classes that you, you know, they were like six week long courses and they taught you different aspects of craft. What do you think of those? Do you think those are worth your time? I mean, I think they can be. I I think anything can be valuable. I just want to dispel the notion that it's necessary. I've taken classes um, since moving to Minnesota. There's a loft, the Loft Literary Center out here uh, where I teach. But before I started teaching here, I actually took some of our, the classes. I took um, a fiction boot camp class, which was designed to get you to jumpstart your novel and get a substantial number of pages written. Um, and I took that after all my experience in publishing and everything else, because again, um, I found the classroom environment helpful for me to have a deadline, to have peers who are going to expect to look at my work. Um, I found that motivating. And I also felt like, you know, I haven't written in a long time and I'm really rusty and it certainly won't hurt to, um, you know, to take a class. And I've taken classes before that I've really enjoyed, that I felt were valuable and worth my time. I've taken classes that were disappointing. Um, It's always going to be kind of a crapshoot. So much of it depends on, especially if it's a workshop class, so much of it depends on the, the, the personalities of the people in your group and the type of feedback they get and also the skill level that they're at. Um, Mm -hmm. We did talk about this in our critique partner class and whatever skill level you're at is fine. If you're a beginner, that's fine. If you're advanced, that's fine. I, I have no prejudices one way or another against whatever level people are at on their writing journey. But it is difficult to put people of varying skill levels together and expect them to give the same give and take in equal amounts because the more inexperienced people just can't do that because they're 
less experienced. Yeah, they don't have the tools or the language yet often mm-hmm. to be able to provide critical feedback that may be necessary for you. Um, I have mentioned, I think, before that, you know, mismatches in terms of critique partners for me are those who focus on the line level of writing mm-hmm. and not the bigger picture of writing. Um, you know, I, I want to know more about pace and characterization and plot. I don't need to know whether or not my comma has been misplaced or... You know, I don't need that sort of critiquing. And I do believe that kind of line-level critique is is something that beginners do because that's what we're taught in school from a young age. You know, good grammar, you know, complete sentences, all of that sort of stuff. So I think I think classes are, in fact, fairly useful if you do not pursue a higher degree in writing. I think... Mm-hmm. Taking these workshops and classes, if they're offered to you, are useful for even if you don't necessarily learn anything new in terms of the craft of writing, I think you actually learn more by being in the classroom environment and interacting and seeing other people's work. Because yeah. Beth Revis and I talked about this, like how how we learned to revise and she basically learned how to revise by critiquing other people's work. And that's kind of the same thing. You often learn a lot by critiquing other people. So it's not necessarily you go to a class to further your own skills, maybe not as direct in the direct way that you might be thinking, because the act of offering critique is as much a learning experience for you as it is for the person receiving the critique. Mm-hmm. So I do believe that you know classes are pretty useful, I think, like I said, Media, Bist- Media Bistro, I think, has online classes for things like that. Oh, yeah. I've done classes with them before, too. Actually, not writing classes, but um, copy editing and proofreading classes I've done with them. And I think it also depends on what you are looking for from your writing. Because if you are focused on publishing and you want to get a book deal, I think classes on craft are much more useful than um, necessarily classes on characterization or you know the kind of like or um like kind of writing 101 type things I think Mm -hmm. to me you learn a lot more after you've written a whole book and then you take classes on craft right right so I also wanted to talk a little bit too um about goodwill hunting it I want to talk about (laughs) (laughs) about just doing it totally on your own you're not you know, doing undergrad, you're not doing MFA, you're not doing classes, you know, or, or maybe you are, but it's been a long time or, you know, whatever. But the people who are out there going it alone, um, what kinds of things they need to do or should be doing, or do they need to be doing anything? I, again, I mean, here, this is kind of, this is kind of the heartbeat of this podcast episode, you guys, is you learn about writing by writing. Mm-hmm. That's how you learn about writing is you write and you also learn about writing by reading. So if you are writing and you are reading, you will be learning more and more about your craft as you go. And I think that really is the bottom line full stop. The only advice that every single writer needs to follow is that you need to write, you need to read and that's it. Everything else is gravy. If you want to go beyond that, or, or if you want to hone in on the types of things, what should you be reading? Should you be reading a lot of books about writing? 
or should you just be reading fiction? What do you think? Should you be reading instructional books or what do you think you should be doing? I think when it comes to reading, read broadly. Mm -hmm. Don't just read what you want to be published in because I think there are a lot of when you read broadly across different genres and different age categories and different types of books, you notice the what elements of a good story... You, you notice that the elements of a good story are essentially universal, regardless of what book, what kind of story it is. So I think reading broadly is the first thing. Don't fall into this, like, pigeonhole of only reading YA if that's, you know, if that's what you want to be published in. I think reading... Also, nonfiction, because really great nonfiction employs a lot of the same tools as really great fiction. Yep. Particularly narrative nonfiction of, you know, like, I do love narrative nonfiction. I tend to love narrative nonfiction that's like a history of a thing. Mm-hmm. Not even oh, like a biography. Salt is amazing. Yes. Salt, um, <laughs> there is a book the title is escaping me, but it's essentially about the history of the formation of the Yellowstone National Park. Um, But it's like this in-depth look at something, and if you sort of kind of remove the whatever information that you're getting from this work, the actual craft of how this work of nonfiction is written is impeccable, because like anything else, it has to have a a logical flow and progression this is what i said about before that if you you know go to college major in whatever you want but take writing take classes that require you to write papers because distilling your idea and then being able to support it with evidence in a clear and logical fashion is basically what is the basis of good writing period and so read broadly i would say that and if it comes to craft books, I'm mixed on that because I think it actually depends on what kind of writer you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing with craft books is I actually don't, I don't feel like I learn anything about the, the technicalities of how to write when I read them. The thing that I enjoy most about craft books are that they often leave me feeling inspired to write. Mm -hmm. That reading about some other writer's process or journey or whatever is inspiring to me, and it's that inspiration that kind of ignites me. I don't often read a craft book and then think, oh yes, this is a new skill I have learned at the end of this book. You know, there's been some that I've enjoyed. I like Bird by Bird. I love Bird by Bird. mm -hmm. I love Stephen King's On Writing. Um, There's a couple of other good ones that are escaping me at the moment. But even those ones are not, it's not, in order to write a novel, first you do this and then you do that. They're more memoir-ish about writers writing and how they write and why they write. Um, And I do find that inspiring, but I don't... I, I agree with you that I don't necessarily learn much from them. I think craft books are useful, again, after you've written a draft. Yeah. Because, so you know what they're talking about. Yeah, so you know what they're talking about, and you can use whatever lessons or worksheets or whatever that they have in their books to, you know, to get, essentially guide you through your revision process to make whatever book you have 
a better book. It's it's a rare person who can do and learn at the same time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you basically have to do something and then learn how to fix it and in the process of learning how to make it a better thing. That's kind of I think really what it is. The thing about writing is the drafting of a book is both the hardest and the easiest thing to do. It's the hardest because just, you know, getting to the end is a struggle. Like getting words on a page is a struggle. But once you have it there, once you have something to work with, that's when the learning happens. That's uh-huh. when you pick up the craft books and you and you get, you know, remarks from your critique partners. Oh, I think the characterization's a little bit flat. So then maybe you open up a, a craft book and it's like you have those character worksheets and you start filling that out and then, you know, they have like exercises, you know, have a scene showing off this character detail and that you start slowly start incorporating that into your the draft that you have. So really the first thing any writer needs to do, aside from writing and writing and writing and reading broadly, is to just write a draft. Just finish a book first. Because you can't learn anything without having done it first. That's kind of the catch-22 of writing, really. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. Just like you have to finish. That's really like aspiring writers out there, if you have not finished your novel yet, then almost don't bother listening to any of the writing advice that we give you and just finish your book first. Because all the stuff that we've talked about, like killing your darlings and expanding and you know earning emotional payoff and all the characterization stuff that we've done, really only works if you already have that to work with. So that's, that's my advice for those of you guys who are, as you said, goodwill hunting it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of the self-education. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I don't know, do you have anything else to say about about the qualifications needed for a writer? To be no. a writer? No. I mean, we've said this in the Quarry podcast before, you don't need previous publication credits either. No. You Your work is the biggest selling point. If I got a book from some from a from somebody who did not go to college, um, has no publication credits, but it made me miss a subway stop, I want to buy that book, right? Mm-hmm. Right, because <laughs> that ability to tell the story is is what gets anybody to read a book. I think from beginning to end, you know, we can the more educated we are about writing I think is when we can start being more critical about language and about structure and about things like that but the primal pure instinctual t- storytelling ability is what is going to make us pick up a book and finish it so yeah I don't, I don't really have anything else to say so alright next segment have you read anything watched anything no (laughs) i have read a book oh what did you read i read a torch against the night by seva tahir which is the sequel to an ember in the ashes is that out yet or did you get it early oh it it came out 
on August 30th, so Okay, just, so just, just a few days out. ago. Yeah, it's kind of killing me because September has all these books coming out. I'm like, but I'm in the middle of deadline and I can't <laughs> read any of you. Uh, I did allow myself to read Seba's book. Um, it was kind of exactly what I needed because it was a one-sitting book. Like, I bought mm-hmm. it, you know, and I you know started it in the afternoon and then finished it right before I went to bed. Yep. Um, I just loved it. I didn't, I, I liked it because it was a different story and I didn't have to be critical <laughs> about, about anything. And, 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 and Seba is an excellent writer and I really, really enjoy it. Highly recommend it. Um, also because this book has a POV of a favorite character from the previous book who didn't have a POV. So I was like, really? Helene is yes. my favorite. Yes, she's, Helene. Of course she's your favorite. She's the best. Because she is the best. Um, so Helene now has a POV in this book. Yes. And she is literally the best. The best. Queen Helene. My queen forever. Um, so yeah, that that's pretty much it. I have not obviously consumed anything else. Kelly, you still need to watch Stranger Things. I'm going to bug you until you I do. I know. It's on my list. Ma- uh, Mike is bugging me too. Lots of people are bugging me to watch it. And I, and I will. I have a huge backlog of things I need to watch. I The thing is, it's like, I, I really think you would love Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just, it's like totally up your alley. And it's really not that scary. There's like yeah. maybe three scenes that are kind of intense. But, like, overall, it's mostly a story about friendships, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like three stories in one, so, um, I don't know, I, I, I just keep bugging Kelly about it. I'm like, Kelly, you need to watch this, you need to watch this, you need to watch this. <laughs> okay, then, so, why don't we actually, we did get a couple of questions from Twitter uh, for our filler segment now, so thank Hooray! you very much. I guess we can, <laughs> we can call this What You're Asking. Mm, there you go. Um, so let's scroll down my Twitter feed to see what we got first. <laughs> so the first one we got was from Renata. And if you guys don't know, Renata hosts a, a, a podcast as well called The Worst Best Sellers. <laughs> it's really good, you guys. <laughs> yes. Basically, uh, Renata and her friend Kate, and often a third guest, will read a best selling novel but not a good one. <laughs> and they will basically give you kind of a synopsis of the of said bestseller, and um, they have kind of like little games and things like that. But there's always a section at, at the end where Renata and Kate say, if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, and they kind of spin out a scenario, and then um, the other one is, if Wolverine from the X-Men were in this book and then they would spin out a scenario. Um, and they also provide what they call reader's advisory at the end, which is books you can read instead of or in addition to the book that was being discussed on the podcast. So Renata's question was, what reader's advisory would you give to Dwayne The Rock Johnson? <laughs> the thing about The Rock... <laughs> Like I don't know what I would give him to read. I want like him to read to me. Bear. I want him. Yes, I want him to read to me. So maybe we should like change the question to what we would have Dwayne the Rock Johnson read to us. What would you have <laughs> him read to us? Um, I would have the Rock read 
corduroy to me. The picture book about the little bear, corduroy, who was in the department store, and Sense and Sensibility. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think The Rock is more of a Marianne or Eleanor? I think The Rock is an Eleanor. I do too. why we're friends, JJ. This I know, is right? why we're friends. Because there was no hesitation about that question at all. <laughs> um, I would like him to read to me Bad Feminist by Roxanne Gay. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, oh, and I Want My Hat Back by Jean Classen. <laughs> Oh, someone needs to hire The Rock to do an audiobook or like a video of him reading I Want My Hat Back. Oh my god. I would die. I would die. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yes. Make it happen, Twitter. All right. So then we have another question from Janella. And she said, she asked, any tips on how to keep chugging along on revisions without losing steam, sight, or sight of the story, voice, prose, etc.? Oh boy. <laughs> well, it helps if you have a deadline. <laughs> yeah. If you have to turn your revisions around by X date, you kind of don't have time to think about or overthink things. I think the danger of any part of this process really is overthinking. Because when you start overthinking things, you start to doubt yourself. And not that you shouldn't question yourself, but doubt is something else altogether. So... I think for my revision tips, like I said, because I'm a pantser, my revision tips is generally, after having written the first draft, is to basically create an outline after the draft has been written, like take what's in my draft and create an outline from that, Um, reverse outlining essentially. And in the process of doing that, that helps me refine and keep track of what I want my story to be. The process of taking what's already there and refining it and structuring it, and like I said, again, that clear logical progression helps me keep sight of the story. In terms of voice and prose, I don't know. I don't think too hard about voice and prose when I write. I've mentioned before that I don't that's not something that's necessarily going to sway me as a reader or as an acquiring editor. At best, it's going to impress me with its, you know, lyricism. But too much lyricism, it just starts to blur together. And, you know, really you want these beautiful phrases and things like that to be punctuations rather than, like, the whole book. (laughs) And... Honestly, most of the time, I want my prose to be invisible. I don't. I, I just want to not notice it. I want to be swept up in the story to the point where I don't notice the writing. And that's actually much harder to do than people think. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I, that's really for me is keeping sight of what your story is anyway. I think having that outline, regardless of whether or not you outline first or outline afterwards, having that helps is like a blueprint to getting you through revisions so that's that's pretty much my advice i don't know kelly you have anything else i've never revised a manuscript so no 
<laughs> well, what would you say editorially, like, if you were to give an edit letter? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think JJ's advice is is solid. I think that you... I think that overthinking it is a real danger. I think that if you haven't begun revising yet, that taking a step away is always a good idea and kind of give yourself some space from the manuscript before you revise. But if you are in the thick of it and you're feeling really overwhelmed, I think going back to basics is best. I like your idea of reverse outlining. I think it will put you in touch with what your story is about and who your characters are and will just help you reconnect with the basics of your story, which is, you know, the heart of what you're trying to, to get at. So yeah, I think going back to basics when you're overwhelmed is always a good idea. All right. So I guess our last question that I can see, let me just check if there's anything else. Yep. We have one last question from Tina and she says, I'm struggling with if my work in progress is YA or adult. <laughs> Any suggestions on how to decide as it drives some aspects? <laughs> you are intimately acquainted with this question, aren't you? <laughs> I am indeed. All right. So, honestly, YA versus adult is a marketing issue mm-hmm. uh, these days. Um, especially as a lot of YA is starting to get a lot more mature and a lot more just darker in theme, content, whatever. Because anything goes in YA, honestly. There is nothing in YA that... There's nothing in adult, really, that you can't write in YA. Right, you just write it differently, sort of. Yes, I think, to be completely honest, the emotional arc of your character, your protagonist, is really what is a bigger determining factor. A adult book tends to have a protagonist who already has developed a sense of self. And the story that comes afterward is... A little bit more external. The thing that I love about YA and what I keep returning to in children's fiction is the coming of age story, right? The Bildungsroman. I and the coming of age story is really the story of a person developing a sense of self. And that's to me what the best YA does. And if you're that's why YA there's the rules are a little bit looser now in terms of like the upper age cutoff for a young adult because you know books like Rainbow Rolls Fangirl are actually set in college because it used to be kind of a hard and fast rule like 18 cut off mm-hmm. you know maybe summer after high school but that's gotten a lot more fluid lately so Rainbow Rolls book uh, Fangirl is set in college um a Court of Mist and Fury, or the A Court of Thrones and Roses books by Sarah J. Moss. The main character, Feyre, is 19. And those books do have explicit sex, just to let you guys know. So, and those are still YA. Um, so the, the line between adult and YA is getting a little bit blurry, so that's why I mean it's kind of more of a 
a marketing distinction. But from a storytelling perspective, the like I said, the story of young adult for me is that of of, of a young person developing a sense of self and having come to a sense of self by the end of the book or the series. Mm-hmm. And I think also young adult tends to be very internal. Like even if a yes. lot of stuff is happening, because the interior story yeah, is important. It's just a lot more intimate, I think, because you're you're much closer to a, a younger person's emotional state and what they're thinking. Um, that's often why you see a lot of YA written in first person. Mm-hmm. Not all YA is, but that you know that sense of closeness and immediacy is is kind of a hallmark of YA. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you don't have that in adult as well, but like I said, most adult characters have already developed a sense of self. So that sort of emotional immediacy is slightly different. And it's also like books like Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld. That is set in high school. It's actually set in a boarding school, but it is published as an adult novel because even though it is set in high school and it's told from in first person from the point of view of a teenager, it does span all four years. And there's a sense to the narrative voice of distance, of looking back mm-hmm. on those years and having and and telling you in a slightly different way how those years affected her and developed her into the person that she is today. Yeah, I was going to say that too that just because your protagonist is a child or a teenager does not necessarily mean that it's a YA book. If the, you know, if it's a story about looking back, if an adult is telling you about something that happened to them as a teenager so that the entire plot of the book takes place when they're a teen, but it's kind of framed by this adult looking back, most times that's going to be an adult because we're going to have this added layer of insight and retrospective and the narrative will be told again with a little bit of that distance. It won't be as immediate. And even, you know, third person stories about children can still be adults, depending on what the story is, how it's being written, and the voice and the tone of the book. So I think you're right. I think the immediacy is really important. And I think it ties directly to that emotional arc of that sense of a character becoming oneself over the course of the book. Yeah, in terms of examples of adult books with young or child protagonists, The Age of Miracles and, um, or, and Room by Emma Donahue. Mm-hmm. Room is told from the point of view of the five-year-old. So, but that is clearly an adult novel because there is a sense of perspective beyond the five-year-old's narrative. That's essentially it. Adult books have distance, and not necessarily emotional distance. Like you can still have an emotionally close relationship to your protagonist in an adult novel, but there is a sense of distance and perspective in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I mean, if you are still confused, I would recommend reading the books that we have, you know, recommended here in this segment to kind of maybe give you a slightly better idea of what the difference is. So. I think that's our last question. Yeah. So thank you guys for submitting. Keep keep sending them to us. Like I said, we're gonna we're not gonna have much to say about our own personal projects or what we're recommending <laughs> until until we're done. 
So, okay, so our last segment now is what you are saying. So we are going to read another review. Okay, this review is from Wish I Was in Italy. I, I wish I was in Italy, too. <laughs> Very informative. I like podcasts that are discussions and not just one person talking into the void, and JJ and Kelly are great. They're fun, and they have tons of industry experience. The topics they choose are extremely helpful for the yet-to-be-published author. So, thank you. Wish I was in Italy. I wish I was in Italy, too. Yeah, <laughs> don't we all? I could, I could go for some, some wine and Italian food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. That was, um, that's super great. I, I'm, I like having discussions. I like, you know, that's kind of our whole thing. It's just kind of talking back and forth, so... Yeah, and like I said, you know, this we talk like this anyway, so might as well turn the mics on. <laughs> this is essentially our G chat, just with yeah. more swearing. Yeah, yeah, and with like a video. Kelly and I are recording this over Skype, and we get to like look at each other as we do this. <laughs> That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our author career series by talking about the business of being an author. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please do rate and review when you get a chance, as it does help other listeners find the podcast. And we might read you on the podcast someday, so yay. Yay! If you want, <laughs> if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website at penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.